prophetic is not negative. It will be challenging, but it's love-based. It's love-based. Then, of course, you have evangelists. Evangelists are those people who call people to hear the good news. That's what evangelism is. It's heralding the good news, and Lord willing, people respond. Guess what? We're all called to be evangelists. Tell people what God is doing. Tell them the things that you're learning. Say, listen, man, you need to follow Jesus. This is totally cool. Or you can say, look, my life's falling apart, but I'm trusting in God. There's a calling that we all have. and You don't have to go looking for it or wonder about it. We're all called to evangelize. Though our roles may differ, there is a common thread, and that's to communicate the love and saving grace of Jesus. As Pastor Daniel takes us through Ephesians 4, we'll see how each of us is equipped to go out and minister in service to others. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 7, with our continuing study entitled, Fruit in the Mess. Now, if all you believe is a God who works through humanity, but there isn't a sovereign, almighty God, you know what you get? All sorts of New Age beliefs right there. That God works creatively through people. But if you talk to anyone who has a New Age background, I have lots of friends. I moved up here from the Bay Area. There's a lot of that going on up here in the Pacific Northwest. It's all about the deity that works through us, but never the God who is over all. And some people believe in a God who's over all, but doesn't work through people. There's a lot of Christianity that looks like that, but that's not Christianity at all. Because God uses people. His cre- he uses, so he works through the people of God. So we believe in the God who is over, the, the transcendent God. And that same God also works through people creatively. We saw it in Ephesians 2.10, that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when God is using you guys, and when he's using me, and when he's using the people of God, that's the same God who rules over everything. He works creatively through us, but he's not only over all, and he's not only through all, and this is the kicker, he is in you all. This speaks of God dwelling within permanently and completely, imminently taking up residence in the life of a human being. Isn't that like mind-blowing? Like if you're here today, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God lives inside of you like he has the deed of your life. His name is on it. You pull up the tax records, it says, Jesus is in here. Like, that's crazy. God created you to be a holy habitation for him. Not only over, not only through, but God hangs out here. And I think that that is seriously cool. And you should too. You should be like, man, God is over everything. He works through us and he's in us. That's who God is. See how the fruit of humility is unity? See how that works? When the church is unified, when it's humble, then we can be unified because there's only one spirit, there's only one body, one church, there's only one hope, 
There's only one Lord, and because there's only one Lord, there's one faith and one baptism. There's only one Father and Lord of all, God of all. And not only is, is he over all, he's through us all, and he's in us all. But we have to be humble enough to say, that's who God is. So the fruit of humility is unity. Now, in verse 7, look at what happens here. It says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 8, therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, these verses here is kind of a bridge between this unity to what Paul wants to talk about next. And what this teaches us is that unity is a gift of grace from Jesus. Unity is a gift of grace from Jesus. Now, let me show you how this is going to work. He just explained that the fruit of humility is unity. And then that this unity now, it's a gift of grace from Jesus. Look at how it begins, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. You see that? To each one of us, to us as individuals, grace was given according to the measure of Jesus' gift. That's why I say unity is a gift of grace from Jesus. Just taking the words and rearrange them to make a point. Each one of us has been given a measure, a gift of grace to be a part of this unity. And then the Apostle Paul has one of his very famous digressions that are so deep, it takes volumes of books to unpack it. And verses 8, 9, and 10 are those kind of verses where literally I have volumes on these verses because it's like a little aside for Paul, but it's, it's like for all of us, we're like, what? Because first what he does is he quotes Psalm 68, 18. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now, Psalm 68, 18, for those of you who are discerning Bible students, if you read what Paul quotes, and if you read Psalm 68, 18, there are differences there. There are differences. The first difference, of course, is that he changes he or you to he. So the psalmist is saying, God, you've done this. And now Paul's saying he did this because he's pointing it to Jesus. And then in Psalm 68, 18, it literally says, and he received gifts for men. And now we get, and he gave gifts to men. And modern commentators go crazy about how the apostle Paul, how can he be inspired by the Holy Spirit if he misquotes Psalm 68, 18? Now I'm here to tell you this, because some of you, this doesn't mean anything to you. I'm going to give it to you anyway. Tuck it in your back pocket for those of you who are very, very serious. You have to realize that in 21st century America, post-enlightenment, we have a very specific set of goggles through which we view the world. And you have to realize that that goggle is only 200 years old. And that 2,000 years ago and 2,800 years ago or 3,000 years ago when the Psalms were written, they didn't have those same goggles. And if you read the Talmud or the writing of the rabbis, which is the discussions of the law by the rabbis of Second Temple Judaism, you'll realize that they apply scriptures differently than we do with our scientific methodology. So we believe that X plus Y equals whatever. And in that culture, when a certain concept comes in, the rabbis have no problem saying, oh, this means this, this, and this. 
And this is applied this, this, and way. So what's interesting is the psalmist is saying, God, you've done this, and you've received gifts for men. And, and the apostle Paul's like, look, this is all pointing to Jesus. And he received gifts for men because he gave them to men. That Jesus is the flow through from God to give gifts to humanity. And in that culture, completely acceptable Bible interpretation. Maybe not so good for us today with the things that we value, but in that culture, totally acceptable. So you have to realize that just because we look at the world this way doesn't mean that everyone's always looked at it this way. Sometimes you're wearing, you ever wear rose-colored glasses? And you think the world is rose-colored? But not everybody sees it through rose-colored glasses. I have these really cool, those of you who've had your cataracts done, they're called solar shields. You know, they got the sides on them. My grandfather has those. And, and I remember I was in Florida. I didn't have a pair of sunglasses. And he gave them to me. They're yellow-tinted. I, I, I mean, it, they looked funky, but I liked the way they looked on me. My grandpa's like, you look good. I'm like, you're blind, Grandpa. And of course I look good. He started laughing. He's like, no, I think it really fits your face, you know. And I'll wear them one of these days. They're crazy looking, you know. I like them. But to me, when you wear these cataract almost goggles that are yellow tinted, everything looks different. And if you forget that you're wearing them, you think that the world looks that way until you take them off. And you're like, wow, okay, it's not nearly as light out. I can't nearly see as clearly as I normally do. We have to realize that we wear a set of cultural goggles that Jesus didn't wear. You have to remember that. 2,000 years ago in Israel, it's a lot different than 21st century in the Pacific Northwest of America. And just because we have those goggles doesn't mean those goggles are always right. You know how I know? Because if the Lord tarries, there's going to be all sorts of people writing in about 50 years saying how nuts we were to think the things that we thought. And you know how I know that's going to happen? Because we're writing the same things about people who lived 50 years ago. And they wrote the same things about people who lived 50 years before that and 50 years before that. So the Apostle Paul's inflection of this verse, I don't believe is wrong at all. It's just a different way of interpreting and applying scripture than we necessarily hold today. So, but with that being stated, it says that he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. And then Paul gets in, in verses 9 and 10, speaking both about the descension of Jesus and then the ascension of Jesus. Now, when it talks about Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth, there's two ways to interpret that. One, it speaks about his death, very common way to talk about dying, being buried into the lower parts of the earth. Or by the time you get to First and Second Peter, Peter is interpreting that when Jesus died, although his body rested in the grave, he went down to dis- descended into those who were in holding in a place called Sheol or Hades, and he preached the gospel to them and delivered people out of there. Two different sets of interpretation. I think both are completely plausible and acceptable. But what it's saying is that Jesus first came down and did all he did, and then he went back up and assumed a place of ascendancy. Does that make sense? So the unity being a gift of grace from Jesus, it's because God came down and then ascended back up. Does that make some sense? It's kind of Christianity 101, the most basics, that God came down, did his work, and then he went on back up. So because the fruit of humility is unity, and unity is a gift of grace given to us from Jesus, the one who came down, he went back up again, he gave gifts to men. Now we get into these different gifts. Look at what happens in verses 11 and 12. It says this. It says, and he himself, speaking of Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, 
for the edifying of the body of Christ. So just as the fruit of humility is unity, the fruit of unity is ministry. The fruit of unity is ministry. Now look what happens. Because humility breeds unity, and this unity is a gift of grace, now it says Jesus gave, he himself gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. So Jesus, who gives this gift of unity, the gifts are actually people, people who do different things. And these are commonly called the five-fold gifts, the idea of an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, and a teacher. These five different gifts that Jesus gives to the church. Now, an apostle in its most biblically stringent version is just the 12 who Jesus chose. If you read Acts chapter 1, when after Judas had committed suicide, they wanted to find another person, one who had been with Jesus and saw him after his resurrection. So in a stringent version, an apostle is those 12. And then you can argue about Matthias, who they chose in chapter 1, and the apostle Paul, who they chose in Acts chapter 9 by the Lord. But in another sense, we're all called to be apostles, aren't we? Because what does the word apostle mean? Anyone? One who is sent. And who's been sent? All of us. Just read Matthew 28, 18 to 20. All of us are sent. You're sent to your job. You're sent to your family. You're sent to your neighborhood. You're sent to the grocery store, sometimes against your will. Never me, though. I love the grocery store. Any place where there's food, I'm like, yes, Lord. I'll do ministry here any day. We're all sent to school, to our jobs. We're sent on a mission from Jesus. We just happen to go to jobs and houses and soccer games and all these things. So apostles, think of a prophet. Most people say a prophet is somebody who tells the future. Actually, that's a really lousy definition of a prophet. Because if you read all the prophecy in the Bible, only about one-fifth of it is predictive. The best definition I ever heard of a prophet is someone who calls into question the status quo and then one who gives a vision for a more glorious God-drenched future. That, to me, is the ultimate definition of a prophet. They call into question what is, and they say, this is what God is up to. This is what our future looks like if we amend our ways from the way things are and we move to what God is calling us to. And guess what? Because prophets call into question the status quo and give a vision for a more glorious future, prophets are not exactly the most popular people in the world. You read the Bible, prophets did not have a fun go. God loves us enough to call into question our status quo, doesn't he? I'm so grateful God does that. God doesn't leave us where we are, just like, yeah, that's just the way they are. They're stuck there. Someone comes and confronts it. Now, there are all sorts of people who call themselves Christian who their idea of being prophetic is just being like the mean, critical person. And you got to realize that prophecy, this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, is always to build up, never to tear down. You can call into question the status quo and still build people up. There's a whole lot of mean-spirited people who say, i got a prophecy gift, and you're a sinner, you're a sinner, God hates you. It's like, no, what? Those are the people that I want to karate chop in Jesus' name. 
you imagine that? Just like Pastor Daniel off the top turnbuckle. But God has redeemed me, so I would never do such a thing. Just in my heart, though, I'm like, will you stop being so negative? Jesus died and rose again. He did all of God's anger against you. He took out on Jesus. Do you realize that? And we're all growing. So if you're here today and you think God is mad at you and you had some Christian along the way said, oh, God really doesn't like what you're doing, bro. God loves you so much, he sent his own son. All of God's anger at it gets all of our mistakes he gave to Jesus. And God's heart for us is love. And that love implores us to change. He says, I want to do a work in you. Don't be the way that you are. But it's not because he's angry at us. It's because he loves us. So anytime someone comes with a prophetic gift, super negative, uh-uh. it's not the voice of your father. It's the voice of someone who's, being, who's angry, who wants to make everyone else angry because they're angry. The prophetic is not negative. It will be challenging, but it's love-based. It's love-based. Then, of course, you have evangelists. Evangelists are those people who call people to hear the good news. That's what evangelism is. It's heralding the good news, and Lord willing, people respond. Guess what? We're all called to be evangelists. Tell people what God is doing. Tell them the things that you're learning. Say, listen, man, you need to follow Jesus. This is totally cool. Or you can say, look, my life's falling apart, but I'm trusting in God. Just tell people the good news, that Jesus is real, that he's at work in our lives. There's evangelists and there's pastors. That word could be translated shepherds, those who care for your souls. We all need those people in our lives, don't we? That's why groups are so important to us. Because we have pastors on staff, but we're all, it's a priesthood of all believers. We need to care for one another. It's, listen, it's absolutely impossible for Pastor Bill before me or me to physically shepherd everybody in Crossroads. It's impossible. Or our entire pastoral staff. It's not possible. But God wants to surround each one of us with people who care for our souls, who shepherd us, who nurture us, who build us up in our holy faith. So there's pastors and then there's teachers. There is a teaching component to Christianity. We have a message. And God has given certain teachers to the church with very specific gifts. Now, why did God give all these things? Why did Jesus give all these things? Look at verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Why did God give apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the people of God for the work of God? Let me tell you this. What goes on here Sunday and Wednesday, whether the worship team or a pastor standing up here preaching, that is not ministry only. This, what we do here is to equip each one of us to do the work of God every single day. That's what it's about. It's not about learning a new Bible verse or a new cool interpretation or hearing a funny joke. It's about, Lord, I am here to be built up, to be equipped by people who love the Lord to go do the work of ministry. We're all called to ministry, all of us. There's no such thing as full-time ministry versus non-full-time. You're in ministry whether you like it or not. We're all in ministry, all of us. Every single moment of every single day, because ministry is service. It's service, and we're all called to it, all of us. So if you're here, you hear the Bible study, you're, you're meant to take this in to build you up so that you can go on out and do the work of ministry everywhere that you are, all hands on deck all the time. That's the way God's 
people work. So you notice this. You have the fruit of humility is unity. The fruit of unity is ministry. And now look at verses 13 to 16. It says this. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now notice, we have the fruit of Humility is unity. Then we have the fruit of unity is ministry. And now, verses 13 and 16, the fruit of ministry is maturity. The fruit of ministry is now maturity. Now, check this out. This is beautiful. When the people of God are humble, then God makes them united. When they are united, then they allow the give and take of different giftings to build us up so that we do ministry. And then the fruit of ministry is maturity. God wants to build up the people of God so that we become mature. That I get that right from verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. That word perfect in the Bible means complete. It means mature. God wants to grow us up. I was talking with a brother who's been at Crossroads since the very first Sunday, and he said, he said, man, Daniel, Crossroads isn't an old established church. We're about an early teenager right now. And it's, it's interesting to think after 37 years of ministry, say, man, we're just hitting our teenage years as a church. God's not even close to us being as mature as he wants to be. I was like, wow, I hadn't thought about it that way. God wants to move us from humility to unity, from unity to ministry, and from ministry to maturity. And there's four marks of ministry, one in each verse. The first mark is knowledge, to the knowledge of the Son of God. God wants to grow each one of us in the knowledge of who Jesus is as a people of God. That when people look at crosses, they're like, man, Jesus is there. Those folks know Jesus. So one mark of maturity is knowledge. It's knowledge. Second, verse 14, that we should be no longer children tossed to and fro, carried out by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Notice, it speaks of being steady or being constant. One of the marks of maturity is not being blown all over the place by, oh, this thing and that thing, and wow, there's this new idea and this thing, but this very steady walk with Jesus. We have to be careful. As the world has gotten smaller, ideas are everywhere. And you can watch. If you look back over the last 20 years, 30 years, 100 years of Christianity, people just run all over the place. Jesus is real. I wanted to thank you so much for listening in at Jesus is Real Radio. I am blessed and humbled that you would take the time and you would grow alongside of this. Now listen, the teaching on Christian Radio, it's amazing. Praise God for all the teaching. But listen, just receiving 
God's word is not God's design for you as a disciple. It, Jesus didn't say, listen, if you want to be my disciple, I want you to listen to good Christian teaching. Jesus, in effect, said, listen, if you want to be my disciple, I want you to be part of the family of God, the people of God, the church. Now, listen. Believe me, I know church is not easy. There's all sorts of people at church. Sometimes things don't go well. I know for many of you, you probably have church baggage because you got hurt or something went on. But listen, God designed a community of believers, a congregation to be the primary way that we are discipled. And so listen, you need to be involved in a local church. God wants you to be growing with a group of people. You need to be in a church that teaches God's word unashamedly, not one that's going to make excuses. You need to be in a church where the pastor's going to say things that you're not going to like. Why? Because then you go to the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? You need to be in a church with people who aren't exactly like you. Because in church, when iron is sharpening iron and you're getting rubbed a unique way by someone who you wouldn't normally hang out with, God will do something amazing. So listen, if you're in the Portland, Vancouver metro area, come join us here at Crossroads. But wherever you are, find a good church, not only because God wants you to, but because God wants you to be blessed there and God wants to use your gifts as a blessing in the people of God. God bless you.